Welcome to the Pearl of Great Price podcast. Thanks for joining us today. It's the 25th of May and on this day in Christian history. We go back to the year 1995. We travel to Rome where Ut Unum Sint, first encyclical ever devoted exclusively to the ecumenical imperative, was issued. In a unique tone for a papal encyclical, see the pod of April the 9th, it was a passionate appeal to all Christians to respond to Jesus' prayer for the unity of his disciples. The title, which in English is To Be One, expressed the desire of Jesus himself, who prayed to the Father that his disciples might be one. It is part of the farewell discourse in John's Gospel given by Jesus to 11 of his disciples after Judas had left to betray him before his crucifixion. Historical divisions amongst Christians have seriously weakened their shared mission to preach the gospel, and the encyclical clearly stated that the ultimate goal of the ecumenical movement was to re-establish full visible unity among all the baptised, This was an important definition, as the terms full and visible have a specific theological meaning. Full unity in contrast to partial unity, which often refers to agreements between denominations to share resources and some liturgical practices. And visible rather than invisible also had a specific meaning. The invisible church is a theological concept of an elect who are known only to God, in contrast to the visible church. That is the institutional body on earth which preaches the gospel and ministers the sacraments. However, to talk explicitly is ecumenism being an imperative marked a significant change in the Catholic approach. Before the Second Vatican Council, Its approach to ecumenism had been much weaker, as it had rejected a false union that would have meant being unfaithful to or glossing over the teaching of scripture and tradition. The encyclical is relatively short, 103 sections in three chapters, that cover first the Catholic Church's commitment to ecumenism, Secondly, it looks at the fruits of dialogue so far. And finally, attempts to look at the future, asking how much further must we travel? This was understood as being a groundbreaking exercise of the papal magisterium. The Pope affirmed that the ecumenical commitment made of Vatican II was irreversible. He taught his fellow Catholics that the quest for Christian unity ought to be sustained both internationally and in the local churches. This was important in the context as just seven years earlier an illegitimate Episcopal ordination conferred by Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre formalised his break with Rome. The French traditionist had accused the Polish Pope and the Second Vatican Council of what he called false ecumenism saying that they destroyed the true faith and that they led the church to ruin and the Catholics 
into apostasy. This ultra-traditional thinking of the Lefebvreists and the priests who were being ordained in their seminary in Econ was not just damaging to church unity, but it could also incite radicalisation and dangerous acts. One of the priests trained there attacked Pope John Paul II with a bayonet, intending to kill him. You can see more about that in the podcast of 12th May. In the encyclical, the Pope explained that ecumenism was not a matter of altering the deposit of faith or changing the meaning of dogmas, but was much more nuanced in how he understood the faith had emerged, saying that the expression of truth can take different forms because doctrine needs to be presented in a way that makes it understandable to those for whom God himself intends it. In whatever culture they belong to, avoiding any form of ethnic exclusivism or racial prejudice and from any nationalistic arrogance. This would later be interpreted in a mean-spirited way by his enemies and he would be accused of relativism. He made two important clarifications in the encyclical. That there was a hierarchy in the truths of Catholicism and that the church was summoned by Christ to continual reform which might require a review of assertions and attitudes. This was a duty for all, especially in ensuring the common good and promoting freedom, justice and peace, saying that the united voice of Christians had more impact than any one isolated voice. The encyclical was under no illusion of the difficult realities of this, calling for a change of languages and of attitudes, avoiding the aggressive and antagonistic approach of opposition or of a defeatism, which tends to see everything in negative terms, or of an unevangelical insistence on condemning the other side, or a disdain born of an unhealthy presumption. However, the encyclical was aimed directly at Catholics, because he realised that the change of language and attitudes had to start there. And he tried to be realistic about how the papacy could be part of the problem, often appealing to various Christian communities to help, to help find a way of exercising the papal primacy, which while in no way renouncing what is essential to its mission, is nonetheless open to a new situation, as a service of love. That, of course, was the ideal and many of the liberal critics of John Paul II and theologians who'd been silenced by him pointed out their difference between the ideal and the reality of his exercise of papal primacy. In insisting that in Peter, unity has its visible point of reference, could also be viewed as a massive hurdle, particularly bearing in mind abuses of the Petrine office historically. 
taking all this into account, this new tone became known as receptive ecumenism. And Anglican, Lutheran, Presbyterian and other Protestant churches published their responses to John Paul's invitation. The most sustained focus, however, has come in the official Orthodox Roman Catholic dialogue. Since 2006, the Joint International Commission for Theological Dialogue between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church has been focusing on the history and the exercise of the papacy, and the dialogue is ongoing. Pope Francis has carried on in the spirit of the encyclical, whilst constantly referring to himself as the Bishop of Rome. And this seems to have had a positive ecumenical impact. However, ut unum sint was not unprecedented. And Catholics may be seen as being slow to the international ecumenical efforts. In the 1910 World Missionary Conference in Edinburgh, Scotland, 1,215 delegates attended, predominantly from North America and Northern Europe, although no Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic missionary organisations were invited, and there were only 18 delegates from non-Western places. Ten years later, the Orthodox Patriarch of Constantinople had written a letter addressed to all the Churches of Christ, wherever they may be, urging closer cooperation among separated Christians and suggesting a League of Churches parallel to the newly founded League of Nations. In 1937, Christian leaders from mainstream Christian churches thus resolved to establish the World Council of Churches to work for the cause of Christian unity. And today it includes most major traditions of Christianity as full members, with the Roman Catholic Church participating as an observer, sending delegates to official gatherings. See the podcast of February the 21st. Each year Christians observe a week of prayer for Christian unity for the goal of ecumenism. And this is coordinated by the World Council of Churches and adopted by many of its member churches. The World Council of Churches counts 348 member churches, which represent more than half a billion members of major Christian traditions. This, with the Catholic Church's 1.25 billion Christians, indicates that 349 churches or denominations already account for nearly 80% of the world's Christian population. Ecumenical dialogue has also proven complicated within the Anglican Communion, as a number of jurisdictions identify themselves as Anglican but are not in communion with Canterbury. The reformed Episcopal Church in the United States left the Anglican Communion in the 1800s in reaction to the inroads of what they perceived to be the Catholic revival and the controversy it had produced in the Church over ritualism. Later during the 1960s and the 1970s, disagreements with certain provincial bodies over such issues as the revision of the prayer book, the remarriage of divorced people, the ordination of women 
and the acceptance by a few of the bishops of homosexual relationships led to another and quite different schism. These Anglican churches are usually called continuing Anglican churches because of their determination to preserve or continue the episcopate in apostolic succession as well as the faith, worship and teaching of traditional Anglicanism and historical Christianity which they believe the Anglican Communion has deviated from. The Church of England in South Africa is conservative, long established and has a substantial membership but is separate from the Anglican Church of South Africa which is part of the Anglican Communion. Other churches, however, have adopted the Anglican name, the Book of Common Prayer, Anglican Vestments, and in some cases the 39 Articles of Religion, but have no historic connection to the Anglican Communion. Unlike those socially conservative continuing Anglican churches and the Church of England in South Africa, some of these tiny jurisdictions are openly orientated towards the gay and lesbian community and do ordain women clergy. When Pope Benedict put in place special arrangements for the mass conversion to Catholicism of disillusioned traditionist Anglicans, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, protested personally to the Pope in one of the most strained encounters between a pontiff and a primate since the two churches had initiated direct and high-level contacts in the 1960s. A ten-line statement issued afterwards was not a joint one. However, the statement included an important endorsement of continued talks on unity. It is said that the Primate and Pope Benedict had reiterated their shared will to continue and to consolidate the ecumenical relationship between Catholics and Anglicans. A commission called ARCIC opened the third phase of talks in 2011 at the ecumenical Bose monastic community in Northern Italy, considering fundamental questions regarding the church's communion, local and universal, and how in communion the local and universal church comes to discern right ethical teaching, especially in a time of great change. This Archic 3 is still open and has held several meetings. Archic 2 led to a commission on unity and mission, but was suspended from 2003 to 2005 in view of the consecration of an openly gay Anglican bishop in the USA. In 2007 they issued a Growing Together in Unity and Mission, which was a summary of nine agreed statements of Archic, including, significantly, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the ministry of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, as universal primate, is in accordance with Christ's will, for the church and an essential element of maintaining it in unity and truth. That's all from the Pearl of Great Price today. Join us tomorrow if you can as we look at the life of Thomas John Bernardo.
and his work for orphans in the City of London after his conversion. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Please subscribe and leave a comment on the blog if you have time. www.pogp.net And if you'd like to respond directly, then email the show on pogppod at gmail.com. Have a lovely day wherever you are. And thanks for listening.